Beloved in the Lord, the first specific law given as an explanation of stealing or an application of the law thou shalt not steal is the law against man-stealing or kidnapping in Exodus. And it's repeated at the end of our reading from Deuteronomy. While most laws concerning the Eighth Commandment come with monetary penalties, kidnapping was punishable by death. It's an attack on the person, one step down from murder and treated by the law as equal to murder. This suggests that stealing itself is a sort of murder. It's an attack on a person. If you've ever had your house robbed, you might understand that. There's a realization that something about your space and the things that you've put so much work into are unsafe, and it feels like an attack on you. God desires to protect His people not only from outright theft, but all sorts of sneaky ways that we might use to undermine the flourishing of our neighbor. Our reading from Deuteronomy covers a section of the, of the text that scholars often connect with the Eighth Commandment. And we can see in the text a number of ways we can steal from each other and God. What seems to be at stake particularly is the stealing of honor and glory both from God and from our neighbor. The text deals with what we call, might call the borders of stealing. Even though we can have a fairly well-understand idea of what is mine and yours, there are still areas where the lines can be a bit fuzzy. Now, the Deuteronomic laws don't solve all that fuzziness, but they give us a goal in using our possessions that we direct our life, as the Catechism says, for my neighbor's good. So I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, God protects his people from theft. First, we're going to look at the principle of ownership. We're going to really think about what it means that God says, thou shalt not steal. Second, we're going to look at the ways we steal. We're going to give, we're going to give some attention to the catechism and what it teaches, what it warns us against in, in how we steal. And finally, we're going to look at our war against greed, both the fact that we should put away greed and the fact that we should put on this desire to promote my neighbor's good. So, beginning with the principle of ownership, the very fact that we have the law, thou shalt not steal, entrenches in our minds the idea of private property. We do really own the things we have, but there's an important corollary here. What we own is a gift from God. The teaching of God on stealing very clearly teaches that men and women do own things, whether it's property or produce or animals or other goods. This is a difficult subject to tackle because on the one end, we have a lot of socialistic thinking that has crept into the church. On the other, we easily lose the understanding that all that we, come, that all that we have comes from God and we start to act like our neighbors in the, in the sense that we think we can use our wealth in any way that we want to. 
there are two ways in which we can undermine the teaching of God here. The first way is to undermine the reality that people do own things. God created us like Himself in that we connect with and love the things we invest our time and labor in. We mix something of ourselves into our possessions so that an attack on our possessions feels like an attack on us. We experience this after a robbery. There's, as I mentioned earlier, there's something traumatic about having somebody in our space taking things that are special to us. It's also suggestive that the worst sort of theft, apart from the theft of the glory of God, is the theft of another person. We want to respect the ability of each person, especially each brother, to flourish in peace before God. And so we categorically reject things like socialism and Marxism that undermine the reality of our ownership of things. The government may not redistribute goods. They uphold justice. You cannot be forced into mercy or else it is no longer mercy. And the source of the belief that you can is envy. Now, sometimes Christians can use the idea of stewardship to undermine the reality of our ownership. We are told that we are stewards of the things we are given. They don't really belong to us, but to God. Now, in an ultimate sense, that's true. It's true before God. He is the one who gives. He is also the one who can take away, as Job says, But we may not use it to undermine our ownership in relation to our neighbors. While the fact that we are stewards is true in the ultimate sense, it can also undermine the reality that God really does give these things to us specifically. It can deny the fact that God is a gift giver, ultimately. Beginning with this idea of stewardship, Christians can make the teaching of Scripture more palatable to Canadian socialist tendencies. Just as the Pharisees used gifts given to God to undermine the call to honor one's father and mother, we often dress our willingness to take our neighbor's wealth in a spiritual dress. As the Catechism warns, do not take your neighbor's things through a show of right. We ought to love justice, and in our desire for justice, carefully preserve the boundaries of our neighbor's ownership, not only as individuals, but as a society. In that sense, the Christian doctrine of stewardship is twisted and used to undermine the glory of the fact that God really does give us these things, and that our ownership ought to be respected by those who have power. Now, the reason some do this sort of thing is that they are worried about the equal and opposite error here. That somehow, when I own something, I lose any obligation to God and other people over the way I use my possessions. This is the road to oppression, pushing my brother into poverty because I want to maximize my profits. When I do not recognize that my own stuff is a gift, I seek to preserve it at all costs, including the detriment of my neighbor. And the source of this is pride and greed. This is the error of, for lack of a better term, libertarianism. 
that my self-ownership and my ownership of things gives me a natural right to use these things in any way that I want to. That's why, for example, many libertarians defend gay marriage and abortion. Our current Canadian system seems to be a schizophrenic mix of this sort of libertarianism on the one hand and socialism, which creates all sorts of chaos for the Canadian people. While we might recognize a lot of truth in libertarianism, especially in terms of my legal rights to myself and my wealth, what libertarians often fail to recognize is that myself and my wealth are a gift. I am therefore obligated out of thankfulness and a desire to reflect the God who has given me so many things, also to demonstrate a willingness to give generously of myself. Remember, Christ gave it all for us, and so I too am to give of myself. For this, Christians must ultimately trust the work of the Word and the Spirit in the hearts of their people. It's important to note that a lot of the laws about giving in Deuteronomy are not attached to a legal punishment because that, because that in many cases was impossible. They are enforced through the encouragement of the Levites and through a social consciousness that would hopefully develop among the people of Israel and unfortunately did not always do so, even as we experience among Christians in our own day. Ultimately, each Christian will either prove true or false to this standard of generosity over time. We must affirm two things, again, to have a fully Christian understanding of ownership. We really do own the things that we own, but we own them as a gift from God who calls us to give of ourselves in response. These seem to push against one another, but objections to this are like objections to the teaching of justification. When you're justified, you will respond with thankfulness and do good things. People fail to realize that when we receive things as a gift… We cannot but respond with generosity and thankfulness. For in this case, even our very selves are a gift. And that brings us to our second point, the way we steal. Outright theft and robbery are easy to understand. We've already noted why God is concerned about these things. He wants to protect people. He wants to give the joy of building and creating and owning that He has as creator of heaven and earth. Something we don't always notice in Scripture. God is described as the great builder. God is described as the great farmer. And we reflect Him that way. But there are a number of other ways that the catechism and Scripture warns us about defrauding our neighbor. We have false weights and measures. Ideally, we will trade in a way that is mutually beneficial to both parties. That's the wonder of our world. God built the world with the idea of growth in it. We can see this in farming life. Somehow we can build up wealth through seeds that produce fruit and more seeds. It's the same with the market. We can trade goods and both feel like we are not cheated. 
false weights and measures undermine that trust. It's the same with deceptive merchandising. Whether we deceive by making our merchandising look better than it actually is, or through advertisements that present false promises, we can cheat and defraud one another. When society starts down this road, it's very easy for us to start down this road. We have this feeling that we need to keep up with the competition, and it becomes easy to cut corners. Counterfeit money is another way to deceive. This time it comes from the consumer instead of the merchant. We can certainly excuse ourselves looking at the fabulous wealth of the big box stores and figure they won't miss some little thing. Finally, there's the matter of usury, commonly understood as excessive interest. There are certainly places in society where people will use excessive interest to snare people and bring them into debt slavery. I think of places like uh, Money Mart. It was a lending place that we used to have in Ontario, and it generally wasn't the most respectable people running those types of places. Easily could have been mob connections. The idea of usury, however, is a lot broader than just that. In the Old Testament, the warning is not so much against excessive interest, but a warning about the types of loans that one would give to a brother in need. Jesus, for example, does not have a problem with interest as far as we can tell from the parables. In general, Israel's were, Israelites in the Old Testament were called to give no interest loans to their needy brothers. This would keep brothers from becoming debt slaves. This was all part of the Jubilee system. If you remember the Jubilee system, every seven years, debts were to be, to forget, were to be forgiven. That was all part of that Jubilee system, and it was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. He said, I am the year of Jubilee. So these laws about interest are not binding to us in the same way. However, the prohibition of usury given by the catechism still has deep and abiding applications for today. We ought to care about the poor among us and the struggling. A no interest or very low interest loan is a great way to show love to a brother. Our reading also warns us about using finances in a way that crush the poor. The reality is some people, whether their fault or not, will lose in the market, and we must be careful about crushing them through financial means. That's where the warning uh, comes about taking somebody's millstone. Don't take away somebody's ability to work for himself. Another application of the warning against usury that the Catechism mentions is one that our, our civil government ought to take notice of, and that's the question of monetary inflation, or what we call quantitative easing today. We often think of inflation as the prices in the grocery store. That sometimes fluctuates because of supply and demand, or it can fluctuate because of monetary inflation. And that monetary inflation is artificially adding to the money supply. The literal meaning of interest in the Hebrew is to bite. By inflating the money supply, the civil government is literally taking a bite out of the value of the money. And this is a sort of stealing as well. Something all those in power, anybody 
who has power over another person, especially financially, should also take warning from is that next line of the catechism. We must not defraud our neighbor by force or show of right. This covers everything else from overtaxation to taking too many works at, so, sorry, <laughs> too many breaks at work. As I mentioned earlier, we live in a pretty chaotic world with regards to the questions of property and markets. So it's important to again look to the scriptures to develop a godly understanding of property. And that brings us to our third point. The problem, or our third point, our war against greed. The problem, the heart of this, is the love of money and our own greedy hearts. Even if we don't technically steal, our own greedy hearts grasp for as much profit as possible. We forget that what we are given is a gift. The Catechism warns, in addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of His gifts. In order to do this, I must remember that all that I have comes from God and I, who have received unbelievable benefits in Jesus Christ, am to pour myself out for the sake of others in whatever work or vocation I am in. Hospitality. That's what the uh, Scriptures use, the word hospitality especially, to describe. The fact that God has given me these gifts is naturally limits how I use these gifts. For one, I'm limited by my brother's life and well-being. I do not seek to steal his life. Ideally, again, trading fairly and honestly will lead to mutually beneficial trades. When my brother is in trouble or, or when anyone is in trouble, I seek to find a way to work things out that will not destroy him financially. Further, I do not seek to use my brother for my own gain at the expense of my brother. Rather, I seek his good. We can see this in our Deuteronomic reading again, in the prohibition against interest, in the warning about overindulging in the fruit of your brother's vineyard, in the refusal to take a millstone as a pledge, even in the protection of the newly married man that he may enjoy his wife. I mentioned again that one of the ideas that runs through our reading from Deuteronomy could be described as stealing glory. I am not to steal or tarnish the good name of my brother or to put him in a spot where he cannot but lose. Hence the connection of stealing to prostitution and to remarriage. It's the same with God. I cannot tarnish His name through my actions or my lack of action. I am further limited by what I owe God. God is my Father and my Creator, and I will not rob God of what He deserves, especially when I have given a vow. Ultimately, we are limited by the fact that God is our Creator and our Savior. God, we're told, has, in the, God has bought us, bought us, and that means everything that we're invested in also belongs to God. In Christ, He gave us a gift beyond our wildest dreams, not only redeeming us through His death, but also by pouring out His gifts on us through His life, His new life. Therefore, even though our possessions are connected to ourselves, 
In fact, because of that, we ought to reflect our God in giving of ourselves. We observe the justice of the law by carefully observing the boundaries that God has set, refusing to undermine the gifts that God has given our neighbor. But we add on to that the mercy of the law, giving generously to those around us, even as the Lord has taught us to be generous in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ encourages us ultimately to not to build up treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy. Those treasures are the people we invest where moss and rust destroy, but rather build up treasures in heaven. Those treasures in heaven are the people we invest in, the good works that go up to God as a pleasing sacrifice. Those treasures are found in building up the kingdom of God. Let us forget our greed and look to use our wealth for the good of our neighbor by building up our business. After all, a good business improves everybody's life. And using those goods, those profits, to provide for the poor and the good of the kingdom. After all, we are told that through deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. So let's continue to invest in His kingdom. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response from Psalm 36, verse 3.